Hi everyone, and welcome back to this month's Women in Dev Presents, the podcast. Hope you're all well and that you've had a good month. Thanks very much for listening to the first episode and for giving it lots of love. If you've yet to subscribe on any of the platforms that you get your podcasts on, please do because you'll keep up to date when our new episodes come out and it helps other people find the podcast easier. At Women in Dev, we've had a really busy month. In September, we hosted a side event for UNGA on how we can ensure equitable funding practices and donor-grantee relationships. It's a really trippy, tricky topic and the discussion was really engaging and really confronting in many ways. The panellists, who were all amazing experts in the field, talked about kind of challenging dynamics such as white supremacy and colonialism and how we can really strip back to the essence of what the funder grantee dynamic is and how we can kind of get beyond that and, and encounter that. You can rewatch the discussion on our YouTube and I would encourage everyone to do so. It really was one of the best discussions I think I've heard on this topic. Um, so check that out. And if you're listening to the podcast in the morning and they're really one of the eager listeners, we have also a masterclass happening today at 3pm UK time. It's in partnership with Fair Share and it's on feminist leadership. It's going to be a really great event and there's definitely still time to register. So please check out our website or social media channels to find out where you can sign up. As always with the podcast, we like to begin with some topical things that have been going on. And I think for many of us, we've been watching in shock at the unfolding situation in Texas and kind of repercussions that are happening across the US with the abortion ban. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Texas has put in a law effectively banning abortion after six weeks and at which many people know lots of women and pregnant people don't actually know that they're pregnant at that point. So it effectively bans abortion. Now, not only is this a really dangerous and scary point to be a woman in Texas, it's also a really scary precedent for other states in the US to follow suit and other countries around the world to mimic what is going on in the US and to really take it as a green light on an assault on women's kind of rights and freedoms and ability to choose when and how to have children. So I guess the message in bringing up this story and highlighting it is that it's so important now, more than ever, to have pro-choice voices heard and to have people speaking up for those who are unable to to speak at the moment and I think for many of us who live in predominantly countries where abortion and reproductive rights are not under threat there's always more we can do whether it's challenging archaic laws around abortion like we have in the UK or challenging buffer zones or calling on other countries um, to fund um, those who are seeking abortions for example from Poland I know that there's a big movement in the EU to do that now or even supporting countries like Namibia where activists there have been trying to overturn the archaic laws on, on abortion so have your voice heard don't placate on what we already have and be proud in, in standing as, as pro-choice mm-hmm. 
And now on to this week's episode and our guest. For this week's episode, we have the amazing Hoho Lejeune Paladi. I hope I said that okay, or Gigi as she's often known. Gigi is a philanthropist and development practitioner from Botswana. She's the founder and executive director of a non-profit called the Juju Lehan Paladi Pillar of Hope Project. She founded the organization over 10 years ago in response to the needs of orphans and vulnerable children affected with HIV in Botswana. She's currently a board of member of the Global Partnerships for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health and a member of the National Vision 2036 Council. Previously to this, she's been a youth delegate across the UN and invited to speak since her early 20s on these issues and managed she a formidable force. Listening to her speak, she really gives an understanding of what it's like to be a young person in development and really gives examples of some of the bad practices when it comes to engaging young people in processes. We talk about the issue of not funding young people for their time, particularly um, not valuing the work that they put in and it meaning that only certain young people can, can kind of take up those offers. We talk about the commodification of young people, so this kind of idea of tokenistically involving them at the end of, of a process rather than at the start. And she also talks about, you know, what could be achieved when young people have ownership and feel really involved in a process. And she gives some amazing examples from the work that she's doing in Botswana and, and some of the projects that they have there. If you enjoy this month's episode and listening to Gigi and I chat, you can check out more about Gigi's work. We'll make sure to link her Facebook in the show notes and you can also check out Women in Dev um, on our Twitter and Instagram page. Give us a like, give us a follow, um, subscribe to the podcast and tell some friends about it. And if you have any ideas for topics, please get in touch with us um, and we will be happy to listen to your guests' ideas, to your topic ideas, um, or just to general comments that you have. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining me and for coming on to the second uh, Women in Dev podcast. We're really excited to have you here. The topic this week or this month, sorry, that we're talking about is around how we can move beyond words and ideas when it comes to meaningful youth participation. And just to give you a little bit of a background, the, the first episode that we did on the podcast, we talked about GEF and this idea of these kind of big conferences, which I'm sure you've been to many at, at the UN, you know, and, and how they can be more accountable. And I think part of that is also about who is involved in those conversations, how are they involved, how much influence and kind of agency do they have um, and what the kind of results are, are beyond that. And one of these big areas is obviously young people and how young people can have voices and agency and decision making in things like you know, we have the COP26 coming up um, on climate crisis or at the UN um, and kind of big conferences. And I know that from your experience and the work that you've done, you've been involved and been in kind of these situations for much of your professional career. So I just wonder if you could talk through us and tell listeners, you know, what has been your experience as a young person trying to have a voice in the development space in these kind of big institutions? 
Thank you very much, um, Wallace, for having me for this um, interview. And I really hope that uh, this podcast ends up really being impactful um, and uh, meaningful for those who will be listening in. And I hope that some of the things that I'll say, uh, they will resonate with you and hopefully amplify the the, the struggles that um, we are all lending our, our, our voices towards as young people coming from um, uh, developing countries. So I would consider myself to have been quite privileged um, to have had an opportunity to represent my country and my constituency at different global uh, gatherings, uh, meetings. It's always quite a privilege to be able to travel to another country, one that I do not take lightly because that gives me an opportunity to interact with people from a different background, people who see things differently, people from uh, different experiences to learn new cultures, new languages, new ways of doing things, uh, to get inspired by uh, the, the stories of the different people that I have really been honored to meet as I go for these international conferences, workshops, and meetings. I've also uh, been happy to be able to contribute toward important global processes, whether they may have been decision-making processes or advocacy processes or convening processes for advocacy, you know, processes such as like uh, the making of the SDGs, the consultative processes that took place in Africa. I took part in that. I took part in like ICPD plus 25 planning of the convening in, in Nairobi, Kenya and got to influence a few sessions here and there. So these are positions and opportunities I truly do not take for granted because it's my hope that every platform that I've been given in the development space to speak about uh, my constituents, my country, my continent, the challenges we face, the opportunities we have, and even telling the success stories because it's not always about coming up with set stories from Africa. I do not take it for granted and I hope that uh, my voice has been able to trigger change somehow, some way. It has been able to inspire transformation for different organizations. It may not be in a big way, even if it's trivial, I really certainly hope that my engagements have not been um, just in vain. I think one of the things that I have found uh, challenging over time as I went for a couple more of um, meetings and, um, you know, conferences, workshops, you name it, is that it, it took me um, a very short time to realize that youth inclusion or the inclusion of young people in many of these platforms is really tokenistic. You know, it's more about being able to tick off a box to say we had young people represented or in the room, we had young people from Africa, and by the way, Africa, it's a, it's a continent, not a, a country, and we have uh, 54 uh, countries, very different cultures, very different uh, dynamics. You know, if you're taking somebody from Malawi and another person from Morocco and from Mali, you know, the countries may all start with an M, but believe me, they're all very different, and we are African. But our challenges, our situations, our privileges and lack thereof are very different. So I think um, this idea that Africa is homogeneous and if you take a young person from Africa, they'll be able to represent young people from Africa or the true image of uh, livelihoods in Africa is 
honestly really wrong and it's very tokenistic a lot of us as young people to be honest we are included in these meetings just so that when donors or big multilateral agencies uh, uh, write back their reports they can motivate getting more funding for more of those convenings uh, by saying we had young people therefore we are reaching out to them we are also including them so it really hurts me so much um, that our involvement is very tokenistic and this is why sometimes at many times actually we are not involved in the actual planning the conceptualizing of these convenings we only come on the final day when it's ceremonious when they need the optics to look good and for pr you know and what's baffling is that some of these meetings are even about adolescents you know they're about young people and you look at the planning committee you find that there's everyone is much older with 30 years experience working in the development arena and they all probably have offices in Manhattan and in Geneva, you know. But here we are talking about uh, including young people meaningfully in decision-making and processes that happen. But I get invited on the final day uh, to Geneva and come and say one or two things. I take pictures and it looks good for the donors to say that they had a young person from Botswana included in this meeting and we got to hear them. And the second thing that uh, a problem I have with is how... A lot of these meetings, uh, young people are really, uh, I would say, taken for for granted. You know, you know, I I've had a, a fallout with one big multilateral agency because they wanted to invite me to uh, deliver a presentation in Geneva for the World Health Assembly, and I they were going to pay for my airfare and my accommodation as well. But then I asked them if they could give me a stipend um, in addition to that, you know, because uh, I would be putting in a lot of hours to put together a presentation. And also, if I'm going for the World Health Assembly for a week, it means I'm taking time off my paid work to go there. So I, if I don't have any travel allowance, it means I end up having to use my own money to just take care of other expenses. So I requested a very small uh, stipend. I think it was like $200 or something of that sort for my week in Geneva to cover uh, as sort of like a speaking honorarium. And they just refused. And they're like, we'll use somebody else. And I'm like, I looked at that event. First of all, it wasn't even held at um, WHO offices. It was held at a very expensive hotel. And, you know, they had BBC World anchors who obviously were paid a lot of money just to come and MC um, the event. But here I was giving an important presentation and I was expected to do it for free. And this is what happens with a lot of these um, in global meetings, you know. They will have a budget to go to an expensive restaurant and have these expensive five-star or three-course meals. And if they need some celebrities influencers they'll make sure that they have a budget to make sure that these people are comfortable but you if you are a young person just making a small request like can you pay me for my time for my expertise uh, for my efforts for the presentation that i'll be giving you know as a sign of showing that you're professionalizing my work and you respect it enough to pay like you pay any consultant coming from geneva to deliver a presentation they refuse because they feel like 
as a young person, I should feel like it's such a huge um, a privilege that I am getting to fly to Geneva. I'm like, oh, this young African who gets to go to Europe. So I should just be grateful for going to Europe and I shouldn't be demanding to be paid for my time. So I found that really um, uh, problematic, you know, and then it goes on to uh, other things as well. You know, those are some of the really big issues um, that I have had with um, the the development uh, uh, space. And then it actually even goes to consultancy opportunities. I often say that, you know, some of these organizations, when they're putting together their let's say, use strategy or business plan, they don't mind flying us for wherever for a meeting so that we come and help them with their internal strategies or work plan or maybe conceptualizing a program uh, for young people, right? So they'll fly me to the country to come and help for a week and we're brainstorming and we're putting together this program. But then when it comes to paid work, right, Consultancy, all of a sudden, they're going to give it to an older. Uh, they're going to give it to an older person in 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 Europe, you know, who's been a consultant for WHO for God knows how long, you know. So I and we it happens even in the country, like in Botswana. I'll be like the UN agencies here and other multilateral organizations. They contact us if they um, need help with, you know, doing some maybe uh, messages for uh, uh, young people for their project or program. But when a consultancy comes out, like paid work comes out, all of a sudden as young people who are not good enough, they need uh, somebody coming from America or Europe with 20 years experience to do it, you know? So I think that just shows a lack of professionalizing youth work. A lot, a lack of, it also shows that our expertise, our experience is really not respected in the development space. And I think that's, that's a really Really, um, uh, unfair way of engaging us, and this is why I'm saying it's very, very uh, tokenistic. And then the last thing, um, out of the many things how we could go on on, on about, is I've always asked why is it easy for uh, these global organizations, multilateral agencies, to spend to spend five thousand US dollars to send me to New York for a meeting, but they cannot give me like. 500 US dollars to help me do programming in my country because they all know that we have our own NGOs and this is why they uh, uh, they want to partner with us or work with us or be seen to be working with us because we do so much work on the ground in terms of distributing commodities, information, uh, public education, reaching key populations with very limited financing and many of us are literally working from our pockets. So I've always been like, if I write to any of these organizations to ask for funding and very small funding like $1,000 They'll tell me that, no, they already have uh, budgets earmarked for something else. They're talking about global conferences. And they'll also tell me that my my NGO is too small. It doesn't meet that due diligence requirements, blah, 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 blah. But then uh, the next day they'll be like, oh, by the way, uh, are you available to fly to New York? I'm like, how can you take me to New York for two weeks for the UNGA? I've learned so much, but you're not giving me any funding to come back home to impart 
impart that knowledge on my constituents, you know, to do something on the ground with what I have learned, to do programming, to transform lives. And this is what I'm saying is very tokenistic. And then it also breeds a certain level of contempt among our constituents back home who think that we just enjoy traveling and we don't do anything when we come back. But the truth is that I'm only funded to go to Geneva and speak well during WHO uh, meetings, but not to come back home and do anything about it, you know? So I think this whole notion that it's okay to spend $50,000 on an event, but you cannot pay a young person $500 for their uh, uh, inputs, their presentation and all their efforts, or even for like moderating and facilitating sessions is really wrong. This whole notion that it's okay to spend $5,000 sending me for a conference in Europe, but you cannot give me $500 to come and implement through my organization in my country is just really, really wrong. Some of those things are, are, are what I, I, I find deeply problematic. And the sad thing is that in this space, when you speak up, they simply tell you, we'll find the next available young person, you know. At the end of the day, a long line of young people will be happy to go to Asia or America or wherever just for travel. So if you are causing trouble, Gigi, we will go and find somebody else who's willing. And then the very last thing I want to say, Wallace, on this is also the... I don't know whether I could say the commodification of uh, the struggles of young people in Africa, you know. So right now I'm talking to you and I've been privileged. I've been to, uh, I started my schooling in a public school. I didn't start to in a, in a, in a private school, you know, and um, I started in a public school. And after that, I got a scholarship to go and finish my studies in a private school. And um, you you listen to me and you're like, oh, she her English flows very well. She's fluent she's uh, confident you know and also I mean never mind how many years of colonialism this is why we all speak good English honestly but you see what happens is that when people pick representatives for like uh, these international conferences and all of that they'll look at me and say okay no Gigi's English is just way too fluent we want a young person who's speaking broken English and who does not have the confidence to you know look those uh, heads of states in the eyes at the UNGA when she speaks we are looking for a young person who has been molested and raped and was married off when they were young and tortured you know because only then can they speak truly about uh, uh, the challenges uh, young people in Africa face and I think that's really wrong you know I, I just think that whole idea of wanting to parade victims as a way of legitimizing that your organization is working with uh, survivors of abuse and atrocious situation is just really wrong, you know, because at the end of the day, it, uh, uh, that presentation, that young person putting themselves on the spotlight and making them vulnerable uh, by them sharing the trauma that they've been through for the benefit of your organization so that you can increase your funding is just really wrong in all angles. Hey? I don't need to have been trafficked to be able to, to talk about the issue of child trafficking, especially for girls in Africa. I don't need to have experienced the worst of situations uh, to, to validate me to speak about challenges that uh, young women uh, face in Africa. And me 
being able to be confident and have a strong command of English does not invalidate me to speak on uh, these issues because I'm an African. I was born and bred in Botswana. And uh, I lived through uh, all the challenges that being young, being a woman, being black, uh, uh, everyone uh, in that intersectionality faces every single day of my life, you know. Well, no, thank you. And I think what you, what you, and yeah, thanks again for sharing kind of all your experiences and kind of showing really, really exemplifying those kind of power dynamics that are at play. I think that's, that's what you kind of showed there. I want to come on to you to talk about in a little bit, the kind of impact of not meaningfully, um, including young people, but I wanted to just get your opinion. And it's, it's something that I keep kind of thinking about and banging my head against a wall about, you know, if you work in the development space and if you're truly committed to um, the kind of emancipation of young people and giving them voices, why is it that time and time again, young people's time, their money, their effort, like you were saying, you know, the fact that you asked for a stipend and weren't given it, why are these things not valued at the same way as someone who is 10, 20 years down the line? Do you, do you have a kind of insight into that? Why, why that is? Yeah, I think uh, it's because, you know, the people who invite us uh, for these uh, meetings, they are coming from a point of pro- uh, of privilege, right? And mm-hmm. uh, they are privileged and they have the power because ultimately they decide. And we, are on the other hand, are most vulnerable because we don't have the negotiating power. You don't have, um, you know, in negotiation, we say that you, you have to be able to have uh, uh, something that is worth negotiating over so like i'm saying because of the abundance of first of all these people are powerful powerful in the sense that they are the ones who have the money to fund you right so your your ability to participate in that international meeting uh, relies on them and so you're heavily dependent on 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 those people uh, because they have the money and we know uh, the old adage that he who pays the piper calls the tune really and then the other thing is that they have a huge pool they believe they have a huge pool of uh, uh, people they can choose from and who would be willing and uh, uh, don't mind being taken advantage of, you know, up until such a time that that person also does not want to be taken advantage of. And then they move on to the next one, you see. And also the other thing that they tend to dangle in front of young people is this thing of exposure, right? You will get so much exposure. You're going to meet donors, decision makers, uh, stakeholders. You could go really far in your career. You could go really far in your NGO through the networking there. So the first time this is you're being told this, you're thinking, okay, fine, if these people are giving me an opportunity, opportunity to network, to travel, to share my work and my make my voice heard. It seems like a fair deal for me to travel there and, and not uh, be, be, be paid, you know? And then it's only after you've done it several times that you realize this is actually quite an exploitative relationship because in as much as I believe that um, they are coming from a powerful position that uh, they can pay and they, they can make it happen or not, I also have the power. I am the person they want to talk to. They need my participation 
to be able to say, uh, indeed, we had young people from marginalized backgrounds or from Africa represented. They also need me to be part of this process in order to deem it to be successful. So I think it takes time for many of us engaged initially to actually realize the power that we have, the position that we hold, and to be able to um, uh, negotiate um, our advantage in that, you know, the most important thing really that I used to be part of the PMNCH in the leadership and I had set up the adolescent and youth uh, constituency. So one of the things we really advocated for was that they should be professionalizing of youth work, right? Professionalizing of youth work um, in the sense that it should just be institutionalized. We shouldn't even leave it to negotiation that ISGG will demand payment mm. or a stipend or honorarium. It should be institutionalized. The same way right now, we know that if a UNICEF says they want a consultant, we obviously know that's a paid position, right? So why is it that it cannot be the same standard to say we need a young mm. person to come and do this? As long as it's work, it's going to require that time, that effort, that research, that is professional work. So why can't we have the same standard uh, to say that uh, uh, we are, if we're going to use a young person, uh, we're also going to pay them? We ended up at PMNCH having structures where if young people are sitting in advisory committees, think tanks, working groups, um, they get like a, a stipend. You know, because also sometimes you're sitting in those working groups and all of that with people who are heads of departments and big organizations like somebody leading a department in World Bank and Women Deliver. These people are on a salary, but I am not on a salary. So you cannot expect me to engage fairly um, with them uh, when I, I, I don't have a salary where I come from. So we, we put it in. Uh, uh, in a systematic way that anybody who is engaged through PMNCH, if it's a young person, they get some sort of support allowance for their participation. If they are speaking at an event, at, uh, whether it's a side event, a UNGA, what, what, it's standard, they will get a stipend or allowance for that. So I think these things should be standardized, that youth work is not free work, it's not free labor. Youth work is not a ticket to get expertise that you don't have to pay for. Let it be the same as any any engaging any other person. Let's not take advantage of uh, uh, the fact that that we are young, uh, or, or or that we are vulnerable, or or that um, we we are going to perhaps say we need this opportunity more. So I think we need to do that. And as young people, we really need to just empower ourselves on some of these things and stand firm. Hey, stand firm and just say we are just not going to be exploited by these organizations for the advancement of the agenda and not be remunerated. I think if more of us are able to say that, then it will send a strong message that young people are tired of being exploited, are tired of being um, engaged in a tokenistic manner. Now they want uh, fair play, they want respect for their experience and expertise, and they want uh, paid work. Yeah, I think you're completely right. It's a bit of a combination of both, isn't it? So we need this kind of institutional change where um, young people's expertise are valued at a standardised price, but then also, you know, to shift that, and that's a really difficult thing to do, is for people who have the ability to say, I'm not going to come to this unless you give me a stipend or um, I'm going to kind of um, pass upon the opportunity to make a stand. Yeah. But that takes a long time, doesn't it, to get to, get to that point. I want to just quickly pick your brain 
touching on kind of one one last question before I let you go because it's been what's so what's so interesting about hearing you speak is that you are obviously so passionate and you've been through kind of lots of different of these situations I can really tell that from 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 the experiences that you've had but just going back to like this idea of having tokenistic young people involved in in decision making or planning or or, or that any yeah. kind of uh, programmatic approaches what what does it mean when young people are only tokenistically involved like what are the outcomes then for a project or or any kind of yeah any kind of project that's trying to make change yeah Meaningful youth engagement of young people means not involving them uh, when when the food is being served. You know, you've gone shopping, you've bought your ingredients, you've started cooking. And then when you are serving around the table, that's when you're like, you know, now come join me and tell me, uh, this is this the food that you liked? You know, is this the food you wanted? You know, that's not meaningful engagement because, you know, you've already prepared the food and now it's there and you're telling me that I and you, that this is the food that you thought I would like, you know, and you use the ingredients that you thought um, I, 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 I would like or I would enjoy, but you did not uh, involve me in that process. And that's usually what happens a lot. And this is not just at the global level alone, even at country level. Many of our governments decide for young people by assuming that that's what we'd want. You know, they just assume, okay, young people say they have a problem with unemployment. So we think that young people addressing this issue of the unemployment of young people, you know, somebody once even said it's not even about instead of teaching us, instead of giving us fish, teach us how to a fish. Meaningful youth engagement goes beyond that. It's actually about even finding out whether we like fishing, whether we want to go fishing. You know, maybe I come like I come from a landlocked country and I don't like seafood and I don't think being around the ocean is, is fun because it's not something that I relate to. And here you are teaching me how to fish. Maybe that's not what I want, you know? So Meaningful youth engagement is about young people not only being beneficiaries of the outcome of whatever initiative is being started, but young people actually being at the beginning of that process, deciding whether that program is what they want, whether it addresses their needs adequately, how to make sure that it's uh, inclusive, innovative, and vibrant enough, whether it speaks to their most current, present needs, and future needs, and allowing the young people to be the one to actually be uh, crafting that program, you know, being the one to actually uh, put it together, uh, run with it and implement with it. And many times in organizations, as young people, we're only involved at the later stage, maybe of implementation. Even calling young people to validate something is not meaningful youth engagement because you didn't include them in the process of designing whatever you are now asking them to validate, right? So I think it's very important to understand that if you want to include young people meaningfully, go to young people and tell them, I'm planning to cook dinner today. What would you like? Go shopping with them for the food, for the ingredients, cook with them, and then after that, serve the food together and start eating. That is meaningful um, engagement of uh, young people. What happens uh, many times when young people uh, are not uh, involved in uh, meaningfully 
what ends up happening is that many of these initiatives, they end up having very low uh, participation or uptake by young people. And then we start to think that maybe young people are lazy or they're not interested in uh, uh, improving their livelihoods or they don't want programs that will help better their lives. They just want to focus on other things like having fun. But the truth is that if something is being forced onto you, there's no sense of ownership, you can't relate to it, obviously you're going to uh, revolt. You're going to be skeptical about engaging with that because you are not part of that process. The same way I'm telling you that I come from a landlocked country and I still find uh, seafood very, very foreign. So if I visit you, Wallace, right now and you serve seafood without even asking what I would would like that, Mm. I'm going to end up I'm going to end up uh, basically not eating the seafood. And you're going to think, geez, she's so rude. I went shopping to get her these oysters and crabs and all of that, you know. But the truth is that Gigi was not being rude. Gigi does not know seafood. She's never, she's not accustomed to having seafood because of where she comes from, you know. And this is exactly what happens. Beautifully designed, well-crafted programs are being uh, are being um, rolled out in our countries but a lot of young people are not taking them out because a lot of young people cannot relate to these programs they don't even know how they mm. they came up sometimes they don't even speak to the immediate needs of a young people you know so we've seen a lot of programs even in terms of because uh, uh, I've worked extensively in sexual reproductive health and rights you know I've seen um our, our governments and NG, and mm. global NGOs and multilateral agencies really, really trying to engage young people around uh, issues like condom use, contraceptive use, you know, um, accessing healthcare services and all of that. And some of them were really not effective and not because young people don't care about our health and we don't want to take these things up, but because they were not... Um, speaking to addressing the, 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 the challenges that, that, that we have. If right now there is a serious issue that young people cannot access sexual reproductive health and right, uh, rights commodities in hospitals and clinics uh, because of issue of how, you know, the stigma, the judgment, and that a lot of the people who are sisters are older than us and old enough to be our parents. And usually they go on the ad- advisory kind of role now, you know, when you are there to just access condoms now you are here now getting a lecture of how you should not be sexually active and that on its own why young people don't want to go to the clinic or healthcare post so the stigma behind going to test for stis because you are suspecting that you've been reckless sexually and you know for many the solution was to put a youth-friendly facility in the hospital and although this was a really noble and beautiful idea many times it didn't work because young people are like if we're saying we don't want to go to the clinic for these services you putting a youth-friendly office still within that premises does not change anything right because you still have to go there and you still have to, the same challenges and worries you have over mm-hmm. stigma, over the intergenerational factor and societal perceptions about you going to access at that service, they are still present within that premises. And much better solution would have been for these uh, multilateral agencies and the government to capacitate NGOs like my own to offer these services to young people. That way, when you come to my organization, nobody knows you're coming there to get a condom or get an STI test 
test or to get a contraceptive, you know, because our NGO does so many things. You could just be here um, to be getting pamphlets. You could just be here for an interview. You could just be here uh, to be playing board games or whatever. You know, that's a completely different mm -hmm. uh, environment all, all together, you know. So that's just another example of how when you don't involve young people, the programs are not effective. And not because young people do not want to take them up, but because of lack of ownership, lack of relatability. And also, honestly, uh, generally, if you, as a human being, it's human nature to want to resent something that you don't feel you were involved uh, sufficiently in, 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 in conceptualizing, in, in building, you know. And sometimes also, especially in, in terms of uh, tokenistic representation of uh, young people during meetings and all of that, the real issues, like the challenges that young people face, they don't come out because... Uh, some of these people, the, the young mm -hmm. people that are used by these organizations are young people who can just read the script or the speech that they've been given by these agencies to say, oh, I am so happy with this agency because it's doing this and this for young people in my small village in Africa and uh, we have no complaints. But that's not a reflection of what's happening on the ground, you know, and, and at the end of the day. Uh, like I was saying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. There are some organizations who only want to invite young people to speak. Uh, uh, they want to be able to, to, to um, what do you call this? They want to be able to train you on how to speak, to guide what you're going to say. Um, and they even tell you, you know, I've been accused of not being politically correct when I was just speaking in my mind or speaking facts. Sometimes even when they realize that, let's say you're going for an international meeting and they are your leaders in the audience, they'll tell you, oh, you know, we really struggled to get the minister or the first lady here. So make sure you don't say anything controversial because they might not honor our invitation the next time. And this is now compromise the legitimacy of the issues that are faced mm -hmm. by young people in my constituency because now I have to abide by a, 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 the person who invited me here. So that is just really wrong. If you're going to invite a young person to say, I want to hear your voice, your, your view on something, allow them to express themselves freely. You know, allow them to tell you the issues without fear, without favor, without intimidation, without even fear that ah, if I speak my mind, they won't invite me to the next meeting. You know, if I, mm -hmm. I, I hit hard on the truth, they won't include me in another delegation, which is really the fear that many of us as young people in the developing um field always fear you know you're always like oh if the unicef executive director is here i shouldn't speak too ill of unicef otherwise they might not give me that fellowship or they might not invite me to the next meeting which is really wrong because that that really ruins the substance of why you were invited to speak your mind exactly. you know so i would say that organizations working with young people Create platforms and allow young people to run with those platforms. Don't control the platforms. Don't censor the platforms. Don't want to guide the young people on what to say. If you create a platform and say, um, this is a conference for young people to come and engage with their leaders. And this is such a big uh, 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 opportunity, especially coming from Africa. There are certain countries in Africa um, uh, that are not like mine, where we can have um, access and an audience to our ministers uh, more often but there are countries where it's very rare for for young people to engage with their minister so if you created a very excellent platform that young people can fly to spain and meet their minister 
allow them to engage the minister truthfully on what is happening on the ground in Mali, what is happening on the ground in Guinea, what is happening on the ground in Tanzania. Allow them to have honest, unapologetic uh, conversations. And this is usually where change happens because change happens always outside um, the, the, the comfort zone. So please, if you want to meaningfully engage young people, let there not be conditions, fear, intimidation, um, political correctness, and all of these tactics that are going to limit the ability to indeed be engaged meaningfully. And then the very last thing is, uh, please let us find ways to support young people that we engage. If you have money to take me to New York, you should clearly have money to help me come and implement whatever I've learned from New York back home. Let's don't just in mm. us helping you get funding for your organizations and agencies. Also invest in me, in my work, in my country, because it actually matters to me. The same way it matters to you that I go and give a speech for you in Italy, it matters for me that I can come back and do work, provide commodities, provide knowledge, provide services to my constituents. So every time a young person is invited to a meeting, I would really be happy if there's another budget to support that young person when he or she comes back to do work on the ground or implement what they have learned from that meeting. That's an amazing thing to, to end on, I think. Wow, you really summed it up. And I love that analogy of, you know, ask somebody what they want to eat first and cook with them and serve it together. That's the only way that you can make something really meaningful and make something sustainable that will last. Um, well, yeah, thank you, Gigi, so much. That was so interesting. Um, and I want to just give a shout out, obviously, to your foundation that you're working on, or the, the kind of project that you're working on, the Pillar of Hope project. I'm sure we can find it on, on Facebook and Twitter. Is that right? Yes, on, on, yeah, on Facebook, it's Pillar of Hope project. On Twitter and Instagram, is GPPH project uh, one. And then um, I think you'll be able to recognize our content there. We have some exciting new project that we're working on around the mentorship uh, and empowerment of adolescent uh, girls and young women around engaging in legislative processes. So if that's something that interests you, please make sure you get in touch. Exactly. Definitely check that out. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to share it with other people or to follow more of the work of Women in Dev, you can find us on Twitter at Women Dev and on Instagram at Women in Dev. 